Welcome to Rocker Radio. I'm Jason Bryan, and you're listening to Well Connected. LinkedIn, as we all know, has become one of the core business tools for social media in recent years. In my daily review, I've become more and more interested in the ideas and innovations coming from the co-founder at Brink.io, Bay McLaughlin. Bay is known as Beta Bay because of his passion for testing new technologies and always trying to improve himself. He's a leader in the world of startups and has built his career by helping startup ideas come to life. Reading his career story from Apple to Brink, I thought I should get to know Bay a little better. In his interview, Bay discusses his days in Apple and their entrepreneurship evangelism channel, his roles in various startup companies, and how Brink is supporting the Internet of Things. We've seen some of the most profound problems in the world be solved by taking data and analyzing it and solving fundamental problems that have plagued humanity for generations, if not forever. It's a real pleasure to be here with Bay McLaughlin. Did I say it correctly? Thanks so much. That's right. You got it. Scottish. Yeah, Scottish. Being British, I probably should know how to pronounce the Scottish name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that's that's great. So to kick off, Bay, I would like to do something a little bit different, just to get to know you a little bit. I want to play the this or that game. Do you know the this okay. or that game? No, but I'm sure it can't be that hard. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So for example, I say Elvis or the Beatles. Perfect. Let's do it. Okay. So the first question is breakfast or no breakfast? Breakfast. Book or Kindle? Book. <laughs> Running or walking? Running. Car or plane? Plane. eBay or Amazon? Neither, because I live in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. And the last one, iOS or Android? I worked at Apple six years, of course iOS. <laughs> I knew that was going to be a difficult one not to get wrong. Okay, that's it. Just for disclaimer, though, I have gone a full two years trying to be conscious of both sides and also being an influencer for Huawei and using their devices. I took a full two years, moved everything to Android in terms of operating system, hardware, software, cloud services. So I have been on the other side, completely iOS you know, only. Yeah, so it's always interesting to get the opinion of somebody who worked for Apple. And I know you worked there for six years. Wow, I mean, your story is actually really interesting. You have been involved in over 40 companies. You've launched over 22 products. I have to ask, how old are you? This is like one of the things you need to ask. How can you do so much in your life at such a... You know, it's, it's a funny thing because in Asia, people hide their age. Like that's a thing. And in the States, living in San Francisco for almost 10 years, it was one of these weird badges of honor. The younger you were and the more you could do, it's like, oh man, you're 28. And you like haven't sold your first company. Ugh, you know, and... It's a very different thing moving from the States, especially Silicon Valley to Asia, because out here, I don't care telling people I'm only 34. And yeah, I mean, I've taken advantage of the years I've been on the earth. But at the same time, whenever I look to a lot of the people ahead of me, you know, not just in terms of age, but also accomplishment. I mean, I think age is just such a relative number and it doesn't mean absolutely anything. It's about how you utilize your time and how hard you put it down every day. Yeah, it's pretty clear that you've done seemingly a lot in the time that you've had and we want to hear all about that so let's start from the very beginning you were born in virginia in the us <laughs> right 
Yeah, small little beach town, Virginia Beach. We did some research. And I love this anecdote of you when you're 12 years old. You know, your father is in the military, your mother is in, she's an educator. And they say, basically, Mm -hmm. you've got to go and make your own money. (laughs) Is that exactly how it was? Yeah, well, I also was never given anything. There was no such thing as like an allowance just because you were alive, right? It was always a set of chores and things that had to be done. It was, you want anything, you got to do it. So when I was 12, I started saving up so I could get my own car when I was 16, was, you know, open my own bank account with my mom when I think it was like, I don't know, it might have been seven or eight or something, but knew how to balance a checkbook before I was out of middle school. And you know, just one of those sort of families where it's like, you know, you're going to have to do it on your own because they certainly weren't made of money, very middle class and hardworking. Yeah, the hard work, it actually puts you in good stead, doesn't it? Because you know that I've got to make something of myself. Nobody's going to look after me unless it's me. I appreciate where you're coming from there. So as a boy then, how did you decide to get into tech? Was it something deliberate or was it always going to be the case? No, completely random. And I always try to tell people this because I think when you see people's legacy or their careers, it's really easy to sort of make assumptions. And I really like to be clear about this. You know, everyone in my family was either a military, captain, army, general, whatever, like all the way down to just teachers of all sorts, like PhD down to special education, you name it. But it was absolutely nowhere near me. There was no tech. There was no entrepreneurship. It was just no hard work, self-reliance, and just a willingness to learn and try things. And so when I went to college, I was studying marine biology. I graduated with the Advanced Biology Award in my graduating class in high school. I was really in this different gear entirely. And I ended up just finding my way into the business school kind of randomly, found my way into getting a job at Apple in college, also randomly just sheer hustle determination. They didn't have job available, but I think that was the first moment. I was a senior in college. I worked for Apple my senior year during my master's. I just had this knack for being able to portray the real value of technology and the utility it provided in our lives. And it was kind of like a magical moment where I realized, oh crap, like I'm good at this and I really believe in this future and I need to find my way in. And and it wasn't given to me. Apple did not hire me after college, which was pretty devastating at the time. I was the top five in the world, part of their global advisory board. Like I absolutely crushed it for them. But it was a good lesson learned that no one's going to, you know, even working for Apple in college, which anyone at 21, 22 would be super psyched about, it's still not a foregone conclusion that you're going to get what you want out of your life. So I had to drive cross country uh, with my best friend in my truck, no job, sleeping on couches, trying to find a company to work for. And I just realized like, I just have to go to Silicon Valley. Like I'll figure it out when I get there. And you know, that was kind of the real beginning of the tech story. Although there's a little bit of kind of precursor during my college years, but there is absolutely no way anyone in my business or my family would have ever been able to predict my career path. No, that's a totally interesting. Uh, I want to dig into the point about Apple, though, because from the outsider's perspective, maybe, you have this idea of Apple being somewhat a cross between a really scientific company and then this kind of like almost hippie innovation space. What was it like working for Apple? I have to say it was a life-changing career-defining experience. And I certainly appreciate the way, I actually haven't heard of the way that you just explained it because the scientific side, I think a lot of people actually give them a little a little bit of crap. I mean, they're a fantastic engineering company. And I think what we're seeing in their moves closer and closer to the health-related space, I hopefully we'll see a little bit more on the science side. But from an engineering and product development perspective, clearly they're world-class. But I think on the hippie side and the creativity and everything else, like, that is probably one of the most 
defining characteristics. And one of the things that I have to say, I always harken back to all the lessons I had at Apple. Like just before the call here, like I was using tactics that I learned in a board meeting for one of the teams that sit on their board, one of our investments to developing my own team to the way I approached just about everything was defined by my time there. It's actually one of kind of my big bits of advice to everyone, which isn't really the audience in this podcast, but just general bits of advice for anyone that listens as a niece, nephew, son, you know, daughter, whatever is getting experience in a startup when you're really early in your career and then going back to a company like Apple and learning how to execute at such an intense level of perfection always. Those married together was a defining kind of bookends of my career all smashed into my early career in my 20s, which will give me and has given me a foundation that a lot of people don't have to kind of pull on for the rest of their career. I love this concept that you also push and it's down in your website too, Better Bay. Yeah, living in beta, beta beta, that's right. Can you explain a little bit more about that for people to understand what your your approach is? Yeah, and this is really personal. It's not about my company. I had this idea of Beta Bay uh, with one of my roommates in San Francisco back when it was probably 26 or something, about eight years ago. And it's really kind of resonated with me because I think the challenge that we have, especially in the super connected space and the kind of all the generation that's growing up now is you're always looking and sort of comparing yourself to every single filtered version of our lives online. And even if you don't, let's say you didn't have social media and we didn't have the last 15 years of kind of comparing ourselves I mean, a big generation of us that grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, like we just put pressure on ourselves because that's the way our parents were. They want us to achieve. A man in Asia, I see it's like a whole next level, right? The amount of pressure people put on their kids. But to me, it was this like methodology for me to help not only myself, but my employees, all the teams that I advise and invested in and people I coach was I just wanted to help people realize, look, beta is this concept if you don't know about in technology where you develop a product a service an application whatever it is and you give it to people called beta testers and the whole point is very simple you're looking for the mistakes you acknowledge there will be mistakes and you're trying to get feedback and you're trying to make things better and the reality is in our lives that we are always in some state of imperfection because you are where you are right this very second. You weigh what you weigh, you look like you look like, you have the money in your bank account that you have, you have the title you have, you live in the world that you have, you have your family and your partners and your kids, everything is just the way it is right this second. And you can't do anything about that right now. But if you can accept the fact that you're always in beta, then you're most likely, you have a chance at least to go down a path where you can accept where you are, that you're always gonna be imperfect to some degree. And you can start working on the pieces that you wanna improve tomorrow. So it's a way for me to, personally deal with all the pressure I put on myself and all the achievements and things I want to do in my life, but also a framework that I can kind of help other people that I work with, you know, my employees, my investments, people I, you know, coach and do my talks and just like help people take a step back <laughs> and just yeah. recognize that you can't do anything about where you are right this second, get over it, but you can change tomorrow and you can start slowly working on the things you want to change. Yeah, and I guess that this openness, because essentially for me, I interpret it a bit like openness. I can go in a different direction if I want. I can be creative. It's definitely something for an entrepreneurship background, isn't it? It's something that is core to kind of like being open to the possibilities of products or services, this kind of thing. Yeah, I think it sort of permeates everything. I mean, I certainly think that there's a connection there with being entrepreneurial and open-minded, but... I really think this is like a, an opportunity for so many people to really give themselves a chance when they really aren't. They're sort of setting themselves up for failure right away. 
because they're putting themselves in this sort of perpetual loop of what's not going to, what's not perfect. What else do I have to be doing? And they're not just taking one little step back. So anyways, living in beta has been a big help to me and a ton of people that I've connected with around the world. And I have to say, like, I'm lucky I kind of stumbled onto this framework in my twenties. That's really helped me get over the fact, you know, that I put too much pressure on myself and I always want to be doing more. And one other thing is that I noticed about you from your website is you do, you also do trainings on mentorship. I mean, you believe everybody needs a mentor or is it more that you want to tell your story of mentorship or every message, every keynote, all my social media that I put out, it's really this message around self-reliance and personal responsibility. I have this other framework that I haven't released, but I've been testing the last couple of years is like leading yourself first. And Everyone wants to do better, wants to achieve more, wants to have more responsibility. But most people don't take personal accountability for their shit every day. (laughs) And I think this is one of those things where it's like, I mean, you can be really over the top about it. And I try to be very empathetic where I can be, but I can always find something better in someone's life or the way they approach their business or their job or their health or their family where I'm like, look, you're not being conscious about this. You're just floating through each and every day. And then, you know, being bummed out or expecting things to happen and being frustrated when they don't, when you aren't leading yourself every single minute of every single day when you can be, that's the part you can control. And that's just like the whole mentorship thing for me is a way to hold people accountable to asking for help, to putting them in a situation that they can ask for people to give them advice, whether it be super formal or informal. But I mean, I don't know about you, I meet people every day and it blows my mind still. I've been running mentor classes and teaching people about this since I was like in my mid-20s. Like people still every day wonder why they aren't where they want to be. And then I ask them, do they have any mentors or advisors? And they say no. And then I ask them, have you ever tried? No, well, I didn't know how. Right. It's like, wow. <laughs> like, what do you think was going to happen? Right? Like people don't get the best because they read all the books or – they watch all the you know vlogs or they go to all the conferences or they put more hours in the office. Like those are all ways to learn, but you need people to give you a hand up. You need people to give you the insights, the access, make introductions. And so there's different ways to structure that. And that's just one of the classes that I teach. For me, I have had mentors in my life, but I do know one thing. I never knew that this was the work I was gonna get into when I was older. So looking for a mentor was something really difficult to do. How would I find a mentor who would be able to get me to the next place that I need to be when I didn't know exactly where the telecoms or the tech world was going to take me? Yeah. One of the things I think people mix up a lot is the difference between mentors and advisors. So the way that I you know, delineate this, and again, it's my personal definition. I get a little frustrated. I think people have really mixed up the definitions. But an advisor is generally tactical or strategic in an industry. So what you were talking about is like the advisors within your space today. Yeah. Or maybe a space you want to get into. A mentor is more personal and with you for longer periods. And it's less about your job and it's more about you as a person. And so having mentors, it doesn't really matter what jobs you take. It doesn't matter what parts of the world you live in, what st- statuses you climb in life, because that person will fundamentally be there to push you. And the other side is advisors. Like my advisors have come and gone many times throughout my career. And I've been in tech the whole time, but they change because the problems I'm facing are different throughout my career. Or regionally, I have different you know, problems now living in Asia or doing business in Asia, Middle East, Europe, North Africa, places that I haven't done business before that I normally would have gone to when I was in the Valley. Like I can't really use those same resources like I used to. So I think just delineating between those two advisors and mentors, advisors pick them up 
based on the industry, based on the things you want to accomplish in your professional career. Mentors are those people that you look back on and say, that person's always been there when I've asked for questions, right? That person's always yeah. taken the coffee. That person's always cared about me. They've, that person's always kind of reached out. You know, I kind of look up to them for X, Y, and Z reasons, you know, ways they live their life, ways they've approached certain aspects of their life. I think that that's a good way of dividing those two up and then finding the right people. Brilliant. Okay. Bay, thank you for the explanation. It certainly helped me to clear my mind a little bit. In terms of going back to your career then, you left Apple. Um, it'd been a success, but what was the next step? Because you actually left and you wanted to move on to do something. What was the next thing that you did? So I created a framework, and this is actually another thing that I find a lot of people put too much pressure on themselves, which is, what's next? <laughs> and this was for me at Apple. I put myself in a fortunate position. You know, I'd saved a bunch of money, bought a bunch of stock at Apple. And then I had this moment where I had a little bit of money, and I said, okay, I need to figure out what's right, not what's next. And I was in a fortunate enough position, right? A lot of people don't have the money in the bank to give themselves that kind of freedom. And I had. So I decided I was going to invest in doing more things, saying yes to more things that I got excited about and saying no to things that I wasn't. And I was going to do that as long as I needed to till I found where I wanted to really be. And that was the whole framework of I'm not looking for what's next. I'm looking for what's right. And the problem in the Valley is there's so many what's nexts. Um, <laughs> I mean, my division at Apple, like just my team alone, we are managing 6,500 startup companies in all the VCs in the Valley. So you can imagine a lot of the investors were like, hey, what are you doing next? Like, I want to know what's going on. Like, what's Bay going to be doing after Apple? And the whole answer was essentially a framework to get people off my back. <laughs> and because I didn't have an answer. You know, Steven passed away. A lot of shit changed at Apple. I had done what I wanted to do. And I was, I didn't know. And so... I sold some stock. I got a house up in uh, Tahoe for the winter, and I went skydiving and snowboarding and surfing all winter and spring. And I started, you know, doing a little consulting for a couple of VCs. So I worked with a fantastic company called Intercom, which you know just got valued at 1.3 billion the other day. So I'm stoked about that holding, and really just like said yes to more things that were exciting, like a turnaround for a film company. I did a turnaround for a juice company. I was doing some advising for like a fitness company and then an architecture firm and really just like trying shit out, you know, throwing stuff at the wall. But all of those were businesses that I believed in, founders that I thought deserved to win and on my terms. And that framework led me, obviously, very different to leave the Valley, uh, get married to my college sweetheart, move to Asia uh, and start Brink, <laughs> my current company. <laughs> Which, if you asked me when I left Apple, there is no way in hell I could have predicted this. <laughs> but it was the framework that I called, I call it the search framework, because I think a lot of people find a real quick way to get to what's next. And, I, and not everyone can afford to, like I said, and I completely appreciate the position I put myself in. But I wanted to just like help people understand that, okay, you're going through the search like phase. You need a framework to tell people enough to get them to say, okay, and stop bugging you and let you get back to what you're doing. And you'd have the confidence of the time financially to really let some trends play out. And for me, that took two and a half, three years before we moved to Asia and built Brink after I left Apple. That's a long time to not have a what's next, right? But I let myself marinate in that space long enough. And now I'm on to the, what I think will be the next 20 to 30 years of my life. So tell us about Brink. How did it start? What is the role that Brink plays? So Brink, as a group, we believe one main thing, that the physical world will be connected. And we have a phrase saying connectivity changes everything. And most people, 
like, oh, it's pretty general. And they think, oh, like the next 2 billion people will come onto the internet. Sure, interpret it however you want. But what we mean is we've seen some of the most profound problems in the world be solved by taking data and analyzing it and solving fundamental problems that have plagued humanity for generations, if not forever. And we look around the world and you know people think of IoT or data coming from stuff like your connected car, your wearable, sure, it's all there. But fundamentally, we believe it's our job to support innovators in the physical world to help unlock the information that's stuck in the world. So how many different times does this plant grow at a certain pace? Why can't we increase the yield to help people eat food you know, at greater scale with less inefficiency? Or why do people with diabetes have to have their legs amputated because they lose sensation in their legs? And we can predict this in advance. There's all these problems or autonomous cars, like 1.4 million people die every year that doesn't have to happen. And this is all about getting sensors into the physical world. So we started the company by investing our own money and We've been doing that for three and a half years now. Uh, we now have funds online. We have multiple divisions and services all the way from early education services where you can connect to our community via our partnership, either with F-Success and Brink, our uh, company we acquired, enterchina.co, if you want to learn about building your first hardware business, through our accelerator programs where we invest up to 100,000 USD per team. We've done 31 investments. We're just about to announce another 12. So we'll have 43 investments in the portfolio as of next week. Then our studio in China, where we help people make their products in China their first time. And that's so profound. Mm -hmm. The ability to take an idea from a corporation, a startup, an SME, a university, and help them get China right the first time, which is critical for physical innovation. You know, we've helped ship 32 products in the last two years, which is, you know, makes me so proud to see all these products in the world because we help people navigate and deal with China. Or our growth team, which is helping with financing inventory, entering new markets like the Middle East or China for teams that are a little bit later. But we've built this lifecycle platform throughout the four stages that really hurt physical innovators. And we've invested in 20 countries. We have offices in six countries around the world, six time zones. We've helped 500 hardware companies in just over three years. And we think we're just starting. Like This is going to be the longest trend in our lifetime. And I like yeah. to kind of tell everyone this because everyone gets psyched about AI. And it's really cool. Everyone gets really pumped up about big data and machine learning and fintech and cryptocurrency and blockchain. And that's all cool. But the problem is all of those are going to be here and gone in the next 10 years. And even though they may have started in research 25, 30 years ago with AI, et cetera, they will materialize right before our eyes in the next 10 years. And that you obviously know the quote about, we all over-exaggerate the innovation or change that will happen in the next two, but always under-exaggerate or undervalue how much change happens in 10 years. Mm -hmm. We will still be connecting the physical world when I die. And this is where I think people have a hard time getting their head around how big IoT is, and it's a terrible vernacular, like the Internet of Things is really a bad marketing term, but the connecting of the physical world is going to take a generation. And that means that we are going to live in a profoundly different place when you and I are 60 than we are today, and we still won't be done. And that's what gets us fired up at Brink, is that the things that we do today will still be relevant, if not paramount, when we're 50, 60, 70. And what we're doing today will actually be additive and not be on to our fifth trend that we have to hurry up and learn a whole new thing, and then it's gone. So. We're, we're looking very long-term. 
So basically, like, like um, if a, a platform for IoT then, and if I'm going to pin it down, if I'm going to explain it, what would I be buying from you, from Brink? What would be your product? Is it advice? Is it consulting? Is it just an infrastructure or... Right now, the only real thing we do is we help people build physical innovation. And so people would join our membership platform uh, on our InterChina community. They would join our free communities for the F-Success and IoT, which we run. They would apply to our accelerator. We would invest money in exchange for equity in their business. They would pay for our services to help them build their products in China. Or they'd apply for financing and growth opportunities in the Middle East, North Africa, China, or if they have a big order they want to finance. That's currently the, the formal way. Now, if you're an investor and you are a corporation or a government, there's all sorts of other ways that we can work together like we have in many regions to unlock the potential via investments, funds, schemes with the government, et cetera. But really the way a consumer interacts or a business is they buy our products. You know, we represent just, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Like we literally were not even a business four years ago. And I look around our lives and it cracks me up just how many products are ours. <laughs> like we ship literally hundreds of thousands of products and that's mind bending to me and we're just starting. So I think it's hard to say what you quote unquote buy from Brink. We're certainly an enabling platform. We consider ourselves an ecosystem. I think the word platform, unfortunately, is very much a software term. Yeah. And people think of like IoT platform being data analytics, which we do not do. <laughs> it's definitely an enabling platform for physical innovation at any size, at any scale, anywhere in the world. So one of the big topics that's been coming through in the last few years in the IoT space, of course, is around security. What is your feel mm -hmm. on that? I'm sure you have a lot of questions on this. This is like a, a semester-long lecture, right, or discussion. <laughs> I think... There are few people in the world that truly understand what's required here and potentially no one. Yeah. Because this is the new battlefield, right? This is exactly like the nuclear arms race, exactly like any sort of unbelievably critical aspect of humanity. Now, I do like to kind of give my teams a little defensibility, a little air cover and say, hey guys, completely appreciate that every IoT company on earth should totally be thinking about this. However, <laughs> building a startup company when you have to be a hardware company, a software company, a SaaS business, globally distributed, all these things, when you are a three-person team with bootstrapped funny or 100K or whatever it is, like would love to also get to the security, but maybe we should let some people like the big guys and other people help create tools, protocols, gateways, all these other things that we all just go, yeah, that standard makes sense, right? And let's just use it. Mm -hmm. So I try to like give my teams a little protection and say, I understand. We should be looking into it. You're totally right. We're also trying to survive. <laughs> We're trying to build yeah, yeah, no. step one of these businesses. So I think it's critical, but I think it's a much larger conversation than anyone's startup. Exactly. In terms of cellular connectivity for the devices that you support, one question, of course, a lot of MNOs are thinking about right now is, should I 5G or not? We just had the licenses auction in the UK recently. And of course, billions were spent on 5G licenses. Mm -hmm. From an operator perspective, of course, there's been a regulation on roaming. So there's some dive on the revenues there. There's been, of course, competition from OTT or chat apps, let's say. Mm -hmm. Now there's 5G. It's another challenge, it's another expense, it's a cost. 
Is it needed for the IoT world? Is it needed for the kind of IoT products? In your experience? This is like a very interesting argument depending on who, where you sit in the world. So if you're a telco or you're a government or a corporation and you're wondering like whether you should or shouldn't, you're already behind. And this would be like arguing that the world will be less connected or kind of stay neutral where we are today versus becoming more connected. That is just a stupid bet. And of course, it's more money, it's complicated, it's new. Check, check, check. Of course it is. In terms of IoT, the reality is, which is fantastic to be, you know, again, kind of good timing for all of us that are in this game, is that this is the first level of the internet or the connectivity that was ever connected specifically with machines in mind. So 4G, 3G, all the other things were meant for humans to interact. 5G was the first infrastructure ever designed, you know, specifically for machine-to-machine communication. And this is the, in my opinion, the biggest boon for IoT that has ever existed. And I think if you're an operator in particular, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, I think there's a couple of challenges. We're also a partner with some big telcos around the world. And it seems so clear to me that the end value is in owning the relationship with the customer or you have to own the pipes. And even pipes will become kind of commoditized over time, as I think you can all know. Anyone that has data, voice, everyone else, like no one really cares, right? I say this on stage in my 50, 60 talks a year I give, I always say this, having worked at Apple and hold my iPhone and say, I worked at this company for six years. I never have and I never will give two shits what's in this device. <laughs> like, I'm personally enamored. I think it's beautiful. I think they do great engineering. I just don't care. And we don't care, similar to who gives us health insurance, we don't care who gives us our cell phone provisions. We just don't care. We want the value that it brings to us. And as a telco, I always am very honest, just like with all my medical insurance partners and all the other kind of big corporate partners we have, is I say, guys, you're not competing with your normal competitors that you're used to every year. You're competing with Apple, Google. And I used to say Facebook, although they're getting a bit of a bad rap right now. But you don't compete with the people that provide the service you provide today. You compete with the people that have my loyalty and my relationship. That is the thing that you fight on. And the problem is we don't like you. And that's the problem with being a telco is that it's invisible. We've all had a million problems with them over the years, like getting our rates jacked up, throttling our data, whatever it is. Like there's a million reasons why we get frustrated. 5G is a redemption moment, in my opinion, for so many telcos, is this is the moment to do it right, to not mess up the business models, not nickel and dime us, to look at all the additional awesome experiences that can be connected and powered through you, through all the retail stores that you have, through the relationships that you'll have to regenerate with us, but you totally can actually do, but not to become this sort of invisible pipe that we never see because eventually, like, I'm just going to buy my internet from Apple with the eSIM or I'm just going to buy whatever. And then I really don't care. And so this is like, in my opinion, the crunch moment for a lot of these guys. And obviously I'm oversimplifying mm. a ton of the backend side and being an influencer for Huawei, like I understand just how much R&D they've had to put in to be where they are for 5G versus, you know, the earlier 4G, 3G. But that's kind of where I think telcos need to get their heads is they need to realize that this is a chance to build back that loyalty with us and create really awesome experiences, both of their retail or business to business divisions, educate us, bring us back in, sell us the vision of how awesome our world's gonna be with you as our partner, with you as our service provider, because you're gonna enable all these new amazing future things because 5G is here and you're gonna help us experience it. 
Very positive. I like this a lot. I think that a lot of operators are on the shelf. They're not quite sure where to go with that. But I can tell you one thing. I would love to redo this in three years for the ones that decide not to invest in 5G. <laughs> yeah. Well, from an operator perspective, we're still thinking about a roaming perspective. We're still getting our head around voice over the actual data network. So LTE, for example, doesn't have the ability to make a call. You need to have something set up called Volte for that to work. Mm. You have that in the US, but not necessarily everywhere. And so that's a challenge in itself for now. Can I throw out a, a random challenge? I've done this in a variety of countries around the world. So as an influencer and like a social media guest character, or whatever you want to call me, like online, I this is something that I've always wanted people to think about, like rethink your model. Why wouldn't, like for me, I travel constantly. And I used to use the T-Mobile roaming plan. I've got China Mobile for Hong Kong and China. I've had a variety of third-party kind of eSIM groups that you can buy from. Okay, look, they all suck for one reason or another. Two things. I am willing, A, like people like me, there's a lot of people, what is the price, <laughs> A, to actually just let me use the damn internet as much as I want wherever I am? What's that price? Someone figured that crap out and stitched it together. Maybe Apple's already done that with the eSIM. The second one is, Think about the amount of content that's created in the world and how much money you could get for branding, how much money you spend. So right now, I've, I've been saying this to every telco. So anyone's listening, you know, give me a ring. Um, <laughs> I will individually brand. I will even rubber stamp it, put a watermark in. If I can just get high-speed internet to create all the content and do everything I do all over the place, I will easily give you branding on that spot because I don't even care. I still pay for it myself. It's not the point. I, we want to create stuff. We want to use the internet. And instead of making it so hard, switch, get your head in a different gear and think of the model where your uplink, which is cheaper than your downlink usually, you can actually find a way to create marketing content and collateral and brand awareness through people like us that just want to create and consume and be out on the internet all day long versus like the nickel and diming and all the kind of pain in the butt stuff. So anyways, that's a challenge I've thrown out to many telcos and I'm still open for a global sponsor. So <laughs> if anyone has one, let me know. No, we have a, definitely a lot of telcos listening to these podcasts and it's, uh, we'll put the challenge out to them. So in, in terms of the future, something you're excited about. I see so many ideas that I think are good ideas or good businesses, but they're not necessarily worth really spending your life working on. I am profoundly excited right now about not only the volume of applications to our accelerator for investment, but also the technologies that I'm seeing in medical health tech and agricultural technologies. I still invest a ton and, you know, and Brink has a ton of investments in drone technologies, transport technologies, fitness and sports technologies, smart cities, safe cities. But the things that really just personally do it for me right now, I think that we're about to go through like one of the biggest crises the world's ever seen in health and food. And, and water and everything else. And this is gonna be a moment where I think IoT really shines. The ability to unlock data from the water table, to unlock data from mm. the palm oil plantations and the cattle and the rice fields, and to unlock data about diabetes and our lifestyle and actually start breaking through because the amount of data we have, the power we have to crunch the data with all the different algorithms, AI, like different intelligence engines that have been created, the big companies getting involved, like JP Morgan with Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon and what Apple's doing right now. There are so many people finally working on some of these massive challenges. And at the end of the day, they're fundamentally human, but guess what? They all are data problems. And 
this is going to be that decade. And that the fact that we even play in this world just gets gives me goosebumps. Like the ability to even just have a very small impact on something like diabetes and people that have to have their legs amputated or yeah. increasing the efficiency of palm oil plantations, which unfortunately cause a lot of deforestation and extinctions of different species to medical adherence, like all these things that we're involved with, that gets me pumped. And I also obviously invest, we're investing in a lot of other coal companies too. But like, I think that this is that decade to really truly show what tech can do to actually save the world. And that, that gets me out of bed every day. Now, I think when you're talking about food and agriculture and health, when you combine those in the IoT space, imagine understanding what is in your food or what is in your water. I mean, these mm -hmm. are basic things we should know by now. And of course, the brands are not necessarily going to tell us exactly what's happened or exactly what's in it, in the food, in the water. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something really important there. And I think any solution which can solve those problems, you can imagine the impact it's going to have on continents like Africa. It's going to be incredible. Yeah, I can give you a huge list of all the investments we made in the space, but it's just like, it's one of those things that you think about what you do in your life, forget the titles, forget the money, forget the experiences, the blah, blah, blah. Just thinking that if you could help move the needle 0.0001% on a problem like the food or the water supply yeah. or diabetes, Jesus, I mean, you could go to sleep, have your life and be happy saying, I just barely moved that needle forward, but look how many people that affected. Yeah, indeed. One more question for you. It's about MIOT, what we call mobile IoT, LTEM, NBIOT. I have to cover them off because from an operator perspective, these are buzz topics right now in terms of sure. connectivity. What's the feeling in Asia, let's say, on those topics? I'm going to flip it a little bit because I am happy that people are thinking like this, but I think that you really do have to understand like what's a buzzword and like the trends versus like what's the impact here. So yeah. For me, I think what's really interesting about Asia, and let's just use connectivity, forget all the different you know, acronyms you just listed off. Think about all those enabling types of technologies and the impact and where they're really valuable. So in Asia, one of the things that I find profoundly valuable, and I try to push this you know, to as many people as I can, is the problems that humans face in Asia are the, future, are the problems of the future. So we live in a density and an environment and a level of connectivity that almost no one in the West can get their head around. I mean, I love New York. My wife and I still have our place there. But like when I go to New York and I compare it to being in Hong Kong or China, I'm like, Jesus, there shouldn't be any connectivity problems in New York. Like, look at all this space in the air. Like, how hard is this to get signal down here? Like, why are, like, this shouldn't be as challenging as it seems to be. At the density of a place like Hong Kong or the scale of a Chinese city, yeah, that makes sense. But also... I don't mean to like not speak directly to the carrier audience here, the telco audience, but I'm probably going to use Huawei as my best example because they create so many invisible enabling technologies that allow people to seamlessly switch from 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, and just roam through a city or the ability to empower the carriers and empower the building owners to create, or the governments to create smarter, safer cities. These types of technologies are fundamentally critical to living the life that we have to live in the direction we're heading in terms of the density, in terms of the infrastructure required to kind of rebuild the cities. A couple of my good friends have a whole fund in San Francisco 
focusing on just rebuilding the infrastructure required because the internet is not built <laughs> for where we're going. Yeah. Um, so he has a whole fun just on that one thesis. But I think that there's a big, big, big push to understand this in Asia because these governments understand that if they don't do everything in their human power to enable their citizens with the best leading edge bleeding connectivity all the way from the very low-fi mobile phone technologies in the Philippines and Indonesia all the way up to Hong Kong, Beijing, Singapore, that they're going to have problems. And I think the rest of the world can do a lot to come learn because we're going to face the problems here way more than you're going to face in the West, which will give you an indication of what technologies maybe you're going to have to use, what you know, let them kind of get beat up and use through the system what works, what doesn't work. And places like China specifically are going to do everything in their power to figure this out because they want to be first. Their people demand it. The growth rate's off the charts. So they're going to go through more cycles of breaking the technology of this early foundations of all the different type of mobile protocols, 5G, faster than any other country. So it won't take them very long to kind of create standards and checkbox or gold list the techs that, that you should be using in all your other Western cities. So I'm not sure that have to be the first one and dive in, you know, coast to coast 2019, like China. Yeah. But at the same time, you definitely don't want to be too far behind and recognize it's not going to take five years for 5G and all these other supporting technologies to become really mainstream. It's going to happen very fast. Bay, this has been really great to speak to you. I know you've probably got some conferences coming up where people can actually hear you speak. If you guys want to come out, I've got a bunch coming up. I'm going to be heading off. I'm actually speaking at Global Sources here in Hong Kong. We're a partner of the Global Sources Conference twice a year. So if any of you are here, April, October every year, would love to see you. And then I'm going to be on the road next week in Berlin and Poznan in Poland. So we've got a bunch of great speaking events like Deutsche Telekom, Telefonica, I think, and then doing a bunch of big VC talks and, and a big day event in Poznan. And then going to be heading off to... Pioneers in Austria, going to be speaking at DES in Madrid and Spain, going to be speaking at Emerge in Belarus, and I just got signed up for a couple of talks in the Ukraine and Kiev, and that's just the next six to eight weeks. So <laughs> if you guys are uh, anywhere around there, let me know. You can also always check me out online just at Beta Bay, B-E-T-A-B-A-Y. I have my uh, speaking engagements and all the events I have around the world, always up to date, betabay.me slash events. But I'm also super reachable. I believe in this. I like you brought up the whole advising and mentoring thing. I do a question of the day every single day on every platform where I respond to every single question anyone asks me. And I'm diligent as this. My team is always looking. If any question comes up, you can obviously respond here. Would you message me on any platform? Use the hashtag AskBetaBay. My team will queue it up and I will 100% respond to you. There's a, it's a guarantee, I promise. You also have a blog on LinkedIn about the China tech. So that's actually a repost of my Forbes column. So I write for oh, okay. Forbes as well. So I have a weekly column called This Week in China Tech. You can search just the term in Google China Tech. I'm always the t one of the top hits every week. And I do all coverage of tech stories that came out of China that are written in Chinese that the Western media did not pick up. So these are the stories that you are not hearing about or there are angles and cultural nuances that the West is not talking about because for me, Living here for the last four years and being fortunate to be in a company where we have 100 years combined manufacturing and time in, you know, behind uh, the firewall in China, there's so much going on and it's very challenging to sift through it, but it's absolutely paramount. If you're in tech, 
if you want to be a business person in the future, you need to be paying attention to China. And so for me, this is sort of my way weekly to kind of, I say, eat my vegetables, <laughs> kind of do my homework <laughs> and make sure that all the things that I fundamentally can feel is happening, I actually can dig through and really sort out why it matters and then help kind of give that to an audience every single week for free to try to help them make sense of it too. Bea, this has been a real pleasure and inspiration. I wish you very good travels, good conferences in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much, Jason. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Look out for more in the Well Connected series in the coming weeks. Currently, Rocco is working on a new research project with operators on A2P SMS vendor performance, where in our fourth annual research project, we look at identifying the best vendors of A2P SMS through 30 plus KPIs. There are over 50 vendors to choose from. Only MNOs can take part and the results are delivered in June this year. Every MNO who takes part will receive an exclusive free executive summary report containing the aggregated data of all MNOs who took part. Well, until next time, this is Jason Bryan and you've been listening to Well Connected from Rocker Radio. Mm-hmm.